Welcome to the Bend ICOC podcast, where we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Don't forget to leave us a review and a rating, and thank you very much for listening. So, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we're in the middle of the series. And um, this one is the compare and contrast. Look at the law versus the kingdom. Um, and so for a little bit of context, I have this great 20-minute intro. Um, we're going to try to cut that way down. And we can turn our Bibles on to Matthew chapter 1. So as you load to chapter 1, um, it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. From Abraham to Jesus being born. There's our context there. And there's a lot of really interesting things that can be said about who specifically is called out between Abraham and Jesus. But Jesus is the continuation, the culmination of this story that began with Abraham. So we swipe right to chapter 2. We have Bethlehem to Nazareth. This is Jesus from being born to being a, um, you know, politically persecuted, being a refugee, and returning from exile. Um, and all of these are things that happen to him through chapter 2. He's a baby. Um, the world happens to him. Chapter 3, the culture knew that the Messiah was coming, that someone would come prepare the way before him, a voice in the wilderness. Chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist in the wilderness, preparing the way for Messiah, um, fulfilling what was predicted. And we conclude chapter 3 with the baptism of Jesus, where God states publicly, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Where God, we could use a whole bunch of words here, but um, affirms Jesus, his identity, and his role. And that is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. Chapter 4, Jesus starts by going into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days. And um, to me, I read this as this allegorical statements of all of the things that Jesus has experienced. Because in these three particular episodes that we're given, Jesus experiences all of the core temptations that we experience. They're all in here, um, in these three uh, examples that we're given. And Jesus responds to each one of these as the affirmed, acknowledged Son of God, as the role that's been proclaimed at the end of chapter 3. And then, Jesus calls the disciples, what will become the 12. Jesus sets out to do what? Jesus sets out proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Say, so we've set up who Jesus is, where he comes from, what he's going to do. He's going to go proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And then we turn to chapter 5. He's got a whole bunch of people around him. He sits down and he begins to to teach, he begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So whatever we're finding in chapter 5, we're hearing Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And that gives us a metric, that gives us a, a standard to view how we view it, to look at our thoughts about it and judge them wisely and righteously in light of what Jesus says he's telling us. Okay. So last time... Alejandro talked about the Beatitudes. What are 
blessed states of being? What is the good adventure that we go on? Um, today, we look at Jesus talking about the law versus the kingdom. You have heard it said, but I say to you, um, this compare and contrast that we'll step through. As we step through them, we're going to feel things about each one of them, or we won't. And that's a th feeling as well. And that's some place to start as we look back at these through the next week of, I feel like this about this. Why? Let's dig into why we have the reactions to these teachings that we do. And do we approach them? Do we receive them as good news? If we're like, some of these I'm like, yeah, well, Jesus, you, you're not quite right about that. You could do better. Um, I'm not receiving that as good news if that's the way I feel about it. So I'm missing something. There's more for me to learn. There's more for me to find here. The law created this contrast between death and life. You had all the rules about food, you had the rules about worship, you had the rules about most everything that differentiated a state of life and a state of death. Set apart a holy people, separated um, in every context between death and life. The law that Jesus tells us of, the law by which the um, citizens of the kingdom live, is between observing humanity, observing the image of God in one another and not. I think it's that simple. I think that is the fundamental thing we'll find in these. Now, if we listen to this as it being the 16th year of Tiberius Julius Caesar, there's a lot of particular lessons and particularly cutting comments in it, especially if you're a person of power, a Pharisee. Um, if we look at this as the 2022nd Anno Domini, Day of, I mean, year of our Lord, we can look at it with an even clearer lens and a lot more Christian experience of what it's like for the kingdom to exist within the world, to the kingdom subverting and correcting and pruning the world. So I think both perspectives are interesting, but Jesus says in the kingdom of Israel, this, but in the kingdom of heaven, this. Um, and we want to celebrate, we want to live, we want to become this, the, the, the greater thing. Um, rules before law. The old uh, pharisaical system looked at the law as don't break this, so let's set up rules to protect us from the law. Let's set up rules. The law is a hot stove. If you touch it, you could get burned. So let's have rules that protect us from, from the law. In the kingdom, it's not about the rules. It's about the spirit, the spirit, indeed. Um, and sometimes this means that in the kingdom, they just simply don't have a stove to get burned on. Sometimes it means that we walk right into the stove, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego style. And in those cases, Jesus isn't telling us about the fire. It doesn't matter except in the context of how it illuminates our faith. Um, and fundamentally, I think we'll find that to live in the kingdom is either to die in a fire or to be fireproof. Verse 17, chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember the first four chapters. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you listen to this in the 16th year of Tiberius, um, it's a very clear attack on the Pharisees. It's an attack on a system that puts rules ahead of the heart and will of God. If you listen to it in the 2022nd year Anno Domini, now we can hear the good news in these words, I believe. Jesus is preaching fundamentally that the kingdom of heaven can be entered. This derives its significance because we can actually enter the kingdom. That's something that's going to be possible in his, in his lesson. Jesus speaks with authority as the ambassador of that kingdom. He holds the keys to both kingdoms to open and shut them at his will as we read this today. So when Jesus speaks of a righteousness surpassing the Pharisees, Jesus intends those who hear to possess a righteousness surpassing the Pharisees. And when the creator of the universe intends a thing, he does not intend it in vain. And I think we can take hope from that. I think we find good news in that. We can also understand that we won't get there by out-Phariseeing the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good at being Pharisees. We should respect them for that, and we shouldn't try to out-Pharisee a Pharisee. There's no good news in that. So we move on to verse uh, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I think we all understand quite correctly the doctrine that our sin is first of all a sin against God, and secondly, a sin against our brother and sister. We, as much as the Pharisees though, can emphasize repenting before God as the preeminent step. But in the kingdom of heaven, the relationship is for some reason treated first. Then the restitution can be made. And when we think about this in the context of the 16th year of Tiberius, Rome was actively murdering in their community, and Israel was actively hating them. And the call here is that these are commensurate crimes, that to deny the humanity of someone, to hate them, to objectify them as, not being, as being less important than you, to be unhuman is equivalent to murder. And this is calling us to a higher standard is one way to say it. But I think more accurately, we're called to acknowledge not just how to behave towards people, but how God views people, how God thinks about people 
and how we as children of God aim to replicate his view of us. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I think I've missed this verse for a long time because I always seem to think about it in the context of, yes, but what if I'm innocent? And I think Jesus is speaking to us when we're not innocent, when we do indeed have an iniquity that should be addressed before it comes to being a matter of judgment. And I think when we approach the minor iniquities of our life, the minor sins against one another in the same way, we would find that it would avoid a whole lot of wrath and, and suffering. But in context of the law versus the kingdom, in the law, you had the concept of an avenger of blood, that a crime beget an agent of justice. And sometimes the only person, the only thing that a person that existed as the agent of justice is God, that a crime begets God as an agent of justice. But in the kingdom, it can beget peace and redemption. It can beget an agent of sacrifice. And certainly from where we look at it now, we see Jesus as that ultimate example of an agent of sacrifice rather than the agent of justice. Now, in our time, the death penalty even is still seems to be in effect. I think the tale of Ananias and Sapphira, um, who lie about property dedicated to God in Acts 5, is an example that justice can still, does still um, remain an active part of the Christian community. But our calling as children of God is to aspire first to be a children, a, a agent of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So again, this is an example. The stove does not go away in this case. The law still burns, but we are empowered, are enabled to walk into the fire, to be able to come, be in it, maybe not unscarred, but certainly unburnt. And again, the central concept here is to see our neighbor as as the image of God, um, and to not deny the humanity and the image-bearing nature of our neighbor. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Now remind me, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Non-rhetorical question. Image of God. Image of God. Kingdom. Kingdom, what it's like to live in the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. There's good news in this. If we read this, and we can't find good news, we should keep reading. We should keep studying. God says there's good news. And this one, oh my, we as Christians have created more rules with these verses than the most ardent Pharisee, I think, could have ever aspired to. Um, and 
to be pedantic here, how do you stumble over your eyeball? We all understand that Jesus is talking metaphorically here, but if my eyeball, if I can stumble over it, it's not properly attached in my head. That is obvious. If I'm stumbling over my hand, I'm not using my hand as a hand. Whatever I'm doing with it, it's not being used as a hand. So does Jesus call us to a higher standard than Moses? Without a doubt, yes. Um, this is from don't break a law to don't break respect for humanity, for humans. Don't, it's not don't touch the stove, it's don't keep a stove around for this. The goal is not to avoid looking at people that are attractive to you. The goal is at the bottom of Genesis 2, of that chapter. That's what we're aspiring to, to be without shame, to be able to look at anyone and see them in their full dignity as an image-bearing child of God. The standard is to be able to look at the most glorious beauty and not corrupt it to our own selfish imaginations. Because what we do when we lust after something, we don't lust after the person. We lust after what we could do with them. We create a narrative and a movie in our head about what we want to do for us. And we're not looking at them as an image of God. I believe our goal is to be able to look at all the beauty God has created and see God in it with that innocence and joy. That is the good news here. Um, we have a standard that is not negative, it is positive. It is to see more in the world than what we see right now. It is to not be satisfied with what we might grasp, but to aim for something greater and more beautiful and more powerful. He carries on in divorce 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce law wasn't that much different from ours, from what I know about it. There was the, you know, not at fault um, <laughs> criteria seemed to be in there. This also sits right between adultery, which is how we look at people as divine image bearers or as tools and toys for our amusement, and a section talking about oaths or where our honesty is derived from. I think that's significant. I think there's a lot that can be said about how the Mosaic law looked at divorce. There's a whole discussion about the phrase, and dying they shall die, that you find throughout uh, the Torah that has some significance about the law looking at certain crimes as placing someone outside the law, which means their spouse, if they're outside the law, they're dead to the law, is another term we hear. And the law knows how to carry on with a spouse once they're, you know, um, their spouse is, is dead. And so all of this aligns with what the law already says, but it goes beyond it. However, divorce is something I have no jurisdiction to speak here. I have no experience. I have no study on this. And so I'm going to carry on. And this is a topic to talk to someone else about if you want to learn more. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, 
do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And when we get to it this week, Joey has a great little video on this. But what I want to highlight here is the idea of oath versus honesty. What is our standard? Where does our honesty derive from? The law condemned false testimony in court. It um, condemned dedicating something to God and not following through with it, that sort of thing. It did not say, thou shalt not lie. It said, thou shalt not bear false witness. The commandment not to lie is in context of you representing law. There appears to be a differentiation between whose authority you speak with within the law is what I'm trying to get at. Are you representing God, law, tribe, family, or self? It would appear that the law sees impinging your honor differently from impinging the honor of law or of God. Because there's punishments for impinging the, the honor of God or the law. But, the king, but in the kingdom, every member is an ambassador, as we learn. Every pronouncement stands on the honor of Christ when we are representatives, ambassadors of Christ. It impinges that honor when we lie. This implies that our authority is not a derived from the appeal to another power, but from the investiture of the highest power in us. And thus, our lives, our action, our word is always representative of the heart of God. It is our duty to represent that to the best of our abilities, to have behavior becoming a child of God. Eye for an eye, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. There's important context here in terms of Roman conscriptment to carry burdens for a mile, of how business versus personal loans are um, carried out in Mosaic law, a lot of that. But when we talk about the law, we talk about the principle of ex talionis, law of retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that the justice, the punishment for a crime must be um, identical to the magnitude of the crime. It is not in excess, it matches the nature of the crime. And as we saw before, crime begets an avenger of blood. That is to say, crime begets an agent of justice in the law. But in the kingdom, crime begets an agent of sacrifice and redemption. That's the potential that exists in the kingdom. That's what we can aspire to and live within. And what's important here, we can hear Oh, if I'm hit, that's just, I just get hit again. There's more to it than that. In the kingdom, sacrifice has power. 
That is the fundamental bedrock on which the reincarnation is based as having power in our lives, is the sacrifice has capital P power in the kingdom. It always meets its end. Maybe not in our world or our lifetime here, but sacrifice is never without power and effect. What the law allows versus what the kingdom desires. Again, we see this here again. This is the shape of a new power in the world. And again, the stove doesn't go away, but we can walk into the fire with confidence because Jesus did. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." I am told the word perfect is teleos here. It's an ultimate object or aim. This is where we've culminated this whole series of steps towards where are we going in the kingdom? What is the point? What is different about living in the kingdom? It's not looking at the law and the rules and saying yes or no. It's looking at where is God? Where is the heart of God? And aspiring towards that in every small decision. Hate your enemy is not really ever God's direct words to Israel, but it is the way Israel puts God's words into effect every single time. If you go back to Genesis 10, the table of nations in there, it'll say after the flood, then this guy had these kids and they became this nation, this guy had these kids and they became that nation, and this person had those kids and they became that nation. The point is that all of the worlds out there, all of the uh, nations, are indeed family. All of our squabbles are family squabbles. And that when we look then at, um, at our, our neighbor or our foreigner, we look indeed at family. We look at an image-bearing child of God. Abraham's commission, what is this whole Israelite thing about Abraham and Israel with it is commissioned in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. And uh, the commission there is, and I'll just jump to the bottom of verse 3, um, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When Israel is working as intended, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the intent here. And Israel fails epically in this, all the way up to here. And in here, in Jesus, this verse, this promise, this commitment is finally fully fulfilled through Israel, not by Israel, but through Israel. Jesus achieves the blessing to all people. So love your enemies. To be this is not where most of us are, but this is where all of us are heading. To be the sort of creatures that can fulfill this teaching, 
the way Jesus did. To become creatures of such heat and light and warmth that we can also live in the fire and be at home there and be safe there. So, in conclusion, how are we following the letter of the law versus missing the heart of God? I think that's the context for us to examine this lesson as we go through it this week. And probably the easiest way for us to see this is when we create a checklist in our Christian life and we build up a tally of checks and we hold it against God and say, okay, I'm expecting my, my toy to come back in four to six weeks. I've sent in my box tops. Um, and when it doesn't work that way, are we disillusioned about God or about checklists? Because I think we can take away from this chunk of the Sermon on the Mount that whatever Jesus intends for us, whatever that perfection, that teleos is, that um, ultimate object or aim that we're headed for, there's no checkbox for it. It is about realizing, understanding, obeying, and being attuned to the heart of God, to see in our fellow um, created beings the image of God that God has placed in them, even as he has placed it in us. And that alone is all the grounds we need to love someone, is that God has put some of his image in them, and that is worthy of some respect before all else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for teaching us today um, with all the same words that you taught us 2020, well, more than that, years ago, Father. Um, we pray that you can change our hearts, continue to change our hearts, that you can lead us in obedience to your words, Father, in clear understanding of your t uh, goals, of your heart, of your perfection, Father, that we could ever strive towards it. And Father, we pray that as we do so, you make clear the beauty, the amazing magnitude of the creation of the image that you have set before us, that you have set in us. Father, we pray that we can look upon one another, as we can look upon our neighbor and see what you see there, Father, to see the spark of yourself in everyone around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It would mean so much to us if you were to leave us a review and a rating for our podcast so that this message can reach others. Thank you.